0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I I don't think that we have put slavery and native dispossession and war, frankly, at the center of our stories. What do we call this period? It's the era of expansion, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, we did expand. um, And the story is of the frontier. Well, why was it the frontier and so forth? So. I consider myself a patriotic person who thinks it's not unpatriotic to acknowledge these facts uh, and to that if we're going to teach our children an honest and powerful history, we need to do it uh, by acknowledging these truths. Um, and But today, this idea that you can't teach anything that hurts white people's feelings or somehow suggests that we were not always God's chosen people is misguided because it doesn't align with the historical record. It doesn't mean you hate America. It doesn't mean you're not loyal to its principles. It doesn't mean you want to indoctrinate children. It just means you want to tell the truth.
1: Hi, everyone. This is A.J. Woodhams, host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics, Today, I am really excited to have on the show Edward L. Ayers for his new book, American Visions, The United States, 1800 to 1860. Edward Ayers is a recipient of the National Humanities Medal and has won the Bancroft and Lincoln Prizes for his innovative histories of Civil War America. He is President Emeritus of the University of Richmond, where he is Executive Director of New American History. And thanks for joining me. Um really excited to, uh, to talk about this book. Um, I know besides writing, you do a lot of stuff uh, or <laughs> have done a lot of stuff. Um, first, I got to say you did an entire, this is something that I nerd out on great courses lectures so much. And you did an entire great courses lecture on, it was a new history of the American South, um, which um, I'm actually, I'm listening to right now. So I've, even though this is the first time that we've, uh we we've, we've spoken here and i've heard your voice it's like your voice has been in my head for uh for several days now great uh, so now i can actually put a face to to this discombobulated voice that's been in my head. <laughs> that's great um but yeah but you've also you've well so you were you were about to say something
0: i'm just gonna say you got this east tennessee accent echoing in your head that's a that's a <laughs> lot you know. <laughs> it's not something yeah. you often hear on broadcast media so it's, it's good for That's you great.
1: yeah no it's great uh, it's very very soothing um <laughs> but you've also you've done podcasts uh, before you're on you're on medium you're on bunk um you mentioned to me that you did it while you're writing this book or actually while you're editing this book um you visited 60 different places around the country um tell me about that that trip real quick because i'm curious about that journey
0: yeah, uh, and people can uh, read this on Medium. Uh, just search for my name on Medium, and uh, so the idea was that it's hard to see this period of American history, eighteen hundred, eighteen sixty. We don't really have a good name for it. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, basically, we define it by a war that hasn't happened yet,
1: <laughs> Antebellum,
0: yeah. and, and uh, so uh, partly to because I'm really interested in public history. I, I was the Founding board chair of the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, which everybody needs to go see on this podcast. It really is remarkable, uh, and it took us 13 years to build it. We joined the museum of the Confederacy with the American Civil War Center, and I think we tell the story the best of in the, in the United States. So mm. uh, it's remarkable, and uh, so I've worked a lot with you know Columbia, Williamsburg and lots of other places, and so I've always been interested in how the story that we write in books gets translated to people who just show up at a battlefield or in a national park site. And it's also the case that my wife and I both just turned 70 uh, and decided that um, we should have another adventure. And so we bought an RV and uh, got her to agree to (laughs) go out. And uh, we drove 15,000 miles, visited 24 Mm. states, I think, and as you mentioned, the 60 sites and the, the premise was we're visiting places where history happened and to see what's happened to that history since. And uh, so our last trip took us from, we live in Virginia, took us to Tennessee, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Wyoming, Colorado, Oklahoma again, Texas, mm-hmm. Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and home. That was our last uh, tour, 25 states. And so what that meant was, as we're coming back to Virginia, we actually ended. Uh, to pick up, anticipate some of the themes of this conversation, where this period began, which is the Battle of, of Horseshoe Bend, uh, where Andrew Jackson defeated uh, Red Stick Creek Indians. Um, and so, even so, the chronology and geography just don't always align. You know, we, we weren't able yeah. to start at the beginning and, and follow that through. That sounds like a dream trip,
1: though. I wonder if, oh, I was, mean, I, I would mean... Me and my girlfriend have talked about. Um, we talked about this during the pandemic. I think a lot of people during the pandemic were like, "Wouldn't it be fun to like get an RV and like travel around?" I don't know if I could get her to like go to all these historical sites with me. So, I'm glad yeah, well, that your my wife wife's not really interested
0: in this history junk either. <laughs> and uh, and that was part of it. In each place, I didn't let anybody know I was coming. I wasn't looking for the conversations behind the scenes or anything. I just wanted what could people see if you showed up at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, right? Yeah. Now, I'm a big fan of the National Park Service. I think they do incredible job. Um, and I would chat you know, with the historians uh, on site. So. But part of this was for, to judge things through the eyes of my wife. What if you were not really interested at all in any of this? What might resonate with you? And I'm, I'm happy to say everywhere we went, uh, she found something that was interesting to her. Great. And so it's a useful discipline uh, to travel with a non-geek yeah. <laughs> as a full-time yeah. <laughs> geek uh, to do all this. But, sure. So the, the journal uh, describes what we found at each place, you know, so Battle of San Jacinto. Uh, you know, how is that remembered? Uh, and as you look out and you see sort of the Houston oil derricks and, and things, you know, from uh, uh, on the sidelines. Um, and uh, but the Alamo, how how is the story of that changed over time? So not to give away the punchline, but. Generally, I found that these people are doing a remarkably, remarkably good job. Volunteers, people in the communities, we visited really out-of-the-way places. Uh, and everywhere we went, there's people of goodwill uh, telling the, the full story. And you know, so there's been sort of a, a, a sub-industry in the history of business of critiquing the way that the stories are told. But uh, everywhere I went, a lot fuller accounting of, roles of slavery and of uh, American Indian history and so forth, um, very even-handed. So uh, it was a heartening story. And uh, so I think we have two or three more episodes to post, but people can uh, go and check out whatever particular place they're interested in. Part of this is to remind young people that no matter where you live, history has happened beneath your feet, that there's history nearby uh, that you should check out. So it's meant to be an inspiring story. And it was a blast. And My wife are still married. Matter of fact, we're having our 50th wedding anniversary next yeah. year. Uh, Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, well, thanks. And uh, I thought uh, it was good to do a stress test here at the end just to sure. see if it really was as strong as it seemed.
1: What's the first question I like to, to ask everyone who comes on this show um, is, uh, if, in your own words, could you just tell us what is your book about?
0: You know, it has a shorter title than many of my books. Uh, it's just the United States, 1800 to 1860. And the, the point of it is is how much of what the nation is was created, not at the founding, because the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence are just kind of sketches for a nation. Uh, but by 1860, most of the shape of the nation, its politics, its religious profile, uh, its its boundaries, um, its Self-understanding had been defined, and I'm not sure that people really understand how much of the United States crystallized in those first uh, three generations of the 19th century. I, I say in the uh, preface that uh, nobody at the time would have imagined that a fluke of a topographical fad and a failed political collection uh, would uh, end up creating the most widely used phrase in the world, which is okay. You know, nearly 200 years later, and that's kind of emblematic. So, so Johnny Appleseed, who nobody would have thought was gonna, is now sort of every kid knows who or thinks they know who Johnny Appleseed was, right, with the pot on his head and all that. Uh, and so, sometimes the things that seemed, and it was often things that seemed unlikely at the time, have endured. Most of the people we teach as the creators of American literature were not acknowledged as such at the time uh, Harmon Melville, uh, you know, basically gives up, uh, Walt Whitman has to publish his own books, uh, that, that, so the people that we imagine as being most typically American were running contrary to a lot of what America thought it was. So it's, uh, it, it's about all the different things that are happening in, in that period. Uh, a lot of it is about, um, the words and the stories that people were using to make sense of what the United States was. And the, it turns out that, you know, my publisher uh, frames the book uh, in the promo literature as a lot of our histories now are either very pessimistic about, you know, who America is, or they're very celebratory, you know, kind of, you know, what a wonderful country we are. And what I do is focus on the ways that the great wrongs of this period, and there never have been deeper wrongs in American history than during this period, the creation of the largest, most powerful system of slavery in the modern world, and the dispossession of indigenous people of a whole continent. Both those things happen in the middle of all this. Uh, And the story that we often tell ourselves is that, well, people didn't really know any better than, you know, that they just thought that's the way things were supposed to be. But at every step of the way, people were saying, this is a violation of what America should be. This is a violation of all people are created equal. This is a violation of the spirit of the New Testament and loving each other. So I'm trying to to acknowledge the great wrongs, but not stop there to say that there's a tradition in American history from the beginning of people holding us to our highest ideals. This is not political correctness to say that those things are wrong or being woke or whatever that means, right? It is what it is, is that there has never been a time when people didn't understand what was going on and didn't raise their voice against it. So it's trying to find a, a, a tone that is not setting in judgment of people, but is celebrating people who are often on the margins, who were you know, considered strange for one reason or another, maybe because they were women (laughs) and dared write books or give speeches. Uh, And a lot of uh, black people who were denied political power spoke truth that we need to listen to today. So it's ironically uh, a hopeful book because it suggests that there's a more patriotic history that we possess that is honest about the, um, the things that we've done in our past that are not worthy of celebration. So, it, it's it's tries to find a different kind of voice. That was well, not as efficient as it might have been, but no. it was a hard book to write, AJ, and so <laughs> it takes a really long no, time to write.
1: No, that's excellent. Um, yeah, I'm I, I'm curious if um, the original title that you sent to your um, your your publishers was maybe much longer, and they're like, let's just let's cut it down to American Visions. Um, but regardless, um, I love that you you've chosen to because you're right, a lot of the um, the history and I mean, frankly, for maybe for good reason, a lot of the history we're getting now does kind of have a, a bit of a, a pessimistic tone um, because so many of the wrongs that have been have been committed in this country have not been talked about. And um, that hasn't been been aired in public. And, um, you know, it's it's uncomfortable. Or they're
0: neglected. You know, the battles in the schools now. Well, let's don't dwell on that. You know, yeah. slavery's over. Right. Let's don't. And so I'm trying to find a way how we might be honest with our kids uh, at the same time that we don't we actually inspire love for the country. Right. For its founding principles. You don't have to love everything that has been done in its name in order to love the country. So I I see this as a new form of patriotic history, one that celebrates its ideals, not every action that it took.
1: Well, uh, I want to come back to that uh, towards the end of the interview, because I've got a few a few questions along those right. lines, but um, I want to I want to start off with um, so so your book is there are four wars that uh, that I want to talk about the war of eighteen twelve, uh, the Seminole Wars, uh, the Mexican War, and um, the Civil War the lead up yep. right to it. Um, so maybe we'll just like start with the War of eighteen twelve, and uh, my my, uh, my listeners and viewers might be a little burned out on the War of eighteen twelve because this will be the third time on the show we've talked about it. It's all um, right. <laughs> it. But for those who have not heard the, those, those other episodes, could you just very briefly, um, what, what were the causes of the war of 1812 and, and what kind of characterized that war?
0: I would say our, our older podcast backstory, uh, which people can find the entire archive of, we had a, an episode on this called The War of 1812. Which one was that? <laughs> And, and and I write about this on the travel <laughs> site, too, because we end up going to several places uh, that are foundational to the War of 1812. And they cover all the way from the Great Lakes, Lake Erie, uh, to the Gulf of Mexico, uh, mm-hmm. to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so the, the the causes of it are basically the United States felt like unless it declared its independence again from the most powerful empire in the modern world, it was not going to be taken seriously. Uh, and the British are, you know, seizing American seamen on the on the seas, but they're also, most importantly, threatening to ally with uh, American Indian uh, opponents of the United States who are trying to stop the viral spread of these white settlers just flooding into their land uh, across that entire border from the Gulf uh, to the Great Lakes, uh, and so the, the United States, you know, Thomas Jefferson famously says that it's going to be a mere matter of marching to go to take Canada. That We could go up there and do that. So try to end, you know, the British threat from the North, try to end the British threat from the West with American Indians try to end the British threat from the East and the South on the high seas. So it's basically, that's what it, what causes it. Uh, And, uh, but it is, you know, In the travel log I write about this, I I give a link to. There's a very funny, uh, uh, brief video online that it's a fake promo for a fake movie about the War of 1812, and the guy you know has. It looks just exactly like a war movie, right? But the guy's explained to his wife why he's going off to fight. He says it's about honor, or, or or taxes, or. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and, and it, it, it's not clear at the time, frankly, and it's not been clear in American history ever since what that war yeah. was about. Yeah. So, well, I mean, I even think,
1: even um, I think in Europe, like if you th- if you talk about 1812, you'd like, oh, Napoleon. And yeah. they didn't even
0: know there was a war going on uh, over the over war the, of 1812. <laughs> right? yeah. and, and in many ways, yeah. of course, the, the, the United States war is really just kind of reverberation of that in the same way that acquiring the Louisiana Purchase is just a reverberation of European events. know, we're not big enough to make history ourselves <laughs> in 1812. We're just trying to navigate. So the irony is that um, in this war, which seemed to go so badly at every step, you know, but then you have C- Commodore Perry, unlikely victory on Lake Erie, and then you have, you know, uh, Fort McHenry and an unlikely repulsion of the British <laughs> in Baltimore. And then you have the deeply unlikely Battle of New Orleans with uh, Andrew Jackson. And each case, um, and it's interesting when you visit the, the small scale, certainly of Lake Erie and of the uh, New, uh, New Orleans, you know, just a few thousand people changed the shape of the entire United States. So at the end of we also visit uh, the prophet's town where Tecumseh and was, uh live. I and, was
1: born just north of there, actually. Yeah, um, it's I'm, very I'm interesting. From, I'm from that, that part of the country.
0: Well, it's beautiful, you know, yeah. and uh, you can. And, uh, it's also haunting to go there to see, yeah. you know, the visions that that those Native leaders had for how they might ally with the strongest empire in the modern world to stop the spread of the United States. And not to ruin this for any of your listeners, but the United States did not lose, um, and as a result, won enormous victories. Uh, that its consequences basically shaped everything that followed. Most importantly, the breaking of the power of the American Indians, and at, at Battle of Horseshoe Bend, uh, Jackson breaking the power of the Creeks uh, is enormous, and so uh, the. The inputs to the War of 1812 are disproportionate to the outputs. You sure. know? Yeah. Uh, and, and other outputs of it are, of course, we come out with a national anthem eventually, and we come out with a, a sage national capital that had been burned to the ground and a sort of a new tradition of that. And we come out with something we've not had before, of post-revolutionary heroes of Perry and Jackson. And so in many ways, the United States is created by victory in the War of 1812. Um, and all of the um, expansion uh, to the Mississippi over the next t- two generations is enabled by the War of 1812. You know, the the, the feet of the creeks uh, opens up over 20 million acres of basically what becomes Alabama and large part of Georgia. Uh, and so the War of eighteen twelve is not fought to uh, expand slavery, but had there not been the War of eighteen twelve, that basically seized all that land that ended up being the richest cotton soil in the nation, uh, you wouldn't yeah. have had the expansion of the slave empire. So, well, I wonder if War you would. I think it's really underestimated in its in its consequences
1: with the 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 slavery uh, aspect. <clears throat> so, I, I had um, I had another guest, a professor, on this show and um, was talking about the lead up to the War of 1812, and talked about, so this period, 1800 to 1860, I don't know if you would agree with this first, but I would say slavery largely defines most of the conflict that's going on, um, which we can talk more about. But he made the point, this this other professor made the point that a lot of the hawks uh, in Congress at the time had had visions of Um, They were Southerners of conquering Canada and expanding slavery into Canada. Um, Was that how first, is that a very, I don't know, is that, is that kind of a mainstream thing? Um, Second, like how likely would that, I mean, how, how much did slavery touch the war of 1812, I guess is what I'm getting at.
0: Well, there's different ways that the expansion to Canada wouldn't occur to me, but by this time, slavery is beginning to be, um, legally uh, ended in much of New England. Uh and so that it strikes me that expanding into Canada would not have been the highest priority uh of the United States, right? Uh but I would say that, you know, Andrew Jackson writes his wife uh after Horseshoe Bend and says, soon we will see great mansions and these fields of 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 cotton that and so he doesn't say using the forced bondage of enslaved people, you don't have to. I mean, you know, he himself is a slave owner and had marched a coffle of enslaved people from the Mississippi to his plantation outside of Nashville. So he's deeply implicated himself. But at this time, um, you know, what the Cotton Empire might be is beyond imagining. Uh, As I point out to people, by the time, in just 40 years, it expands over an area the size of continental Europe. American slavery does. Right. And over areas that had not only not been in slavery, but had not been in the United States. So if you t- if you think about taking at Georgia, Alabama and Mississippi and then Louisiana and take New Orleans, you know, with the um, um, Louisiana Purchase uh, and then controlling the Mississippi as a result of the War of 1812, um, the expansion of slavery becomes feasible in a way that it had not been before. But what it also does is not get ahead of the stories. It feeds the hunger for ever more expansion farther west, which leads to other wars, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's like um, the, the revolution as a whole. People can go and argue about what role did slaveholders play in causing the revolution or writing the Constitution of the United States, Uh, But what cannot be debated that had the United States not been its independent nation and able to expand slavery at its own will, it would have been a much smaller presence. I mean, if if we're still a part of Great Britain in 1834, uh, you know, that maybe could have stopped the the abolition of slavery in the Caribbean. But or it could have followed the path of Mexico, which 1829 in slavery. Right. So it's uh, this is one of these. Trying to, you know, it's like talking about the Civil War. Uh, did Robert E. Lee fight for slavery? Uh, no, but he fought for a nation based on slavery, right? So did, was the War of 1812 about slavery? No, but did it lay all the foundations for what slavery became?
1: Yes. Let's um, move along to the Seminole Wars. Um, all right. Be- because I, I am I, interested in talking about um, Native Americans and some of what you write about. Um, what was going on with Native, American, Native Americans in the country. But similar with like the War of 1812, um, could you just give like a brief overview of uh, what started that and, and what characterized the fighting?
0: Well, uh, ask me to be brief. You notice it's not the easiest <laughs> yeah. but Because these are complicated things. But it's okay. the short yeah. version of it is, is immediately following um, so this is still a, a consequence of War of 1812. Andrew Jackson's the great hero. He's determined to uh, drive native people from anything that the United States wants basically uh, and feels justified in doing so on the side of progress and and uh, natural rights um, and so there's perpetual war against the native people of the eastern United States from uh, eighteen twenty all the way through the 1830s uh, and um, people know about that Amer- that uh, Indian Removal Act of 1830, which Jackson kind of just rams through, and then the five or six years after that is basically low-grade warfare to drive American Indians in the, in the, the Cherokee and the Choctaw and the Creek um, and uh, Chickasaw uh, and the Seminoles from the eastern United States, especially in the southeast. But there's wars against the Black Hawk, you know, in, in the north and in Indiana as well, mm-hmm. right? So, we don't really think of that necessarily as war, but it's military, militarily enforced uh, removal. You know, they try they, with treaties, they use the, you know, purchase and various kinds of agreements. But if, if the American Indians will not leave, then they bring in uh, military force to do so. And that's how the final uh, Trail of Tears of the Cherokee uh, and, the, and the Creeks and Chop is empowered basically by the War Department through contractors. You know, and one of the things that makes it so terrible is that they just sell out, you know, to cronies uh, for the lowest bid and who then basically cheat the American Indians out of, you know, the kind of support they deserve to make this migration to the Indian territory. Well, the Seminoles uh, are st- uh, geographically positioned so that they had the strongest position. They're in basically uninhabited Florida. Um, and uh, the United States Army can't figure out a way to remove them and spends just untold amount of money. You know, so Jackson is all about government frugality and all this stuff, but they spend. I don't want to give an inaccurate number. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but more than you can imagine, <laughs> sure. basically per per Seminole person to drive uh, out of Florida. And. uh and also the deaths of American soldiers they send down there who uh, and who are not equipped and nothing the United States possesses is works well in the swamps of Florida to try to give people uh, drive people out. Uh, they try new kinds of guns, uh, and know, uh, repeating rifles and things. Our uh, cult um, emerges then, uh, but basically it's there's two Seminole wars. They drag on for years. They had a different general every year for eight years (laughs) to try to to bring this to completion. And it's interesting how invisible this is in the American memory, because it was, you know, the the story we tell about We are really good at fighting wars. The United States has been really good at that uh, all along. And and I don't mean that in any sarcastic way, mobilizing a democratic society quickly with new technologies and volunteer armies and, and professional armies, good at it. Seminole War was not an example of that. They really couldn't figure out how to drive these American Indians out of their native lands and in many ways failed. Uh, yeah. If you added up the amount of money they spent to remove a few thousand people, uh, it would have made no sense whatsoever. So and it was bloody and uh, diminished the reputation of the United States Army. Uh, in the well, I,
1: you know, I wonder if so we we hear about and you know, it in, in your book. About the the people, the visionaries who spoke out against the against slavery, and um, of the evils of that. Do we have people who are who have a vision for cohabitating with Native Americans who spoke out against the Seminole War, or um, some way offered a vision for that was less violent?
0: Yeah, one of the heroes of the book is a man named William Apes, Apess A P E S S. Uh, and he was of mixed Pequot and white ancestry in Massachusetts, and uh, Methodist minister. And so he used the language of Christianity to hold white Christians to the standard of, "Are you behaving like a Christian when you are doing these things?" Uh, and uh, he also railed against it was against the law in Massachusetts for a clergyman to marry a person of Native and white ancestry, and he says. First of all, he is. And he says, I know many people uh, who are of the first quality who are uh, of this. So his idea was, well, we've already seen what it is, is that it, uh, he would be on the side of assimilation, the sense of Christianity and intermarriage, I think, that and of pr- property holding, uh, all those kinds of things. And a lot of the Cherokee, of course, one of the most powerful places we visited on our trip, New Echota in Georgia They say, look, we're creating our capital. We have a newspaper in our own language as well as English. We adopted all the laws of the United States. Uh, We're slaveholders. Uh, You know, we're growing the things that you grow. We speak English. We send our children to boarding schools in New England. What else could you ask of us? And what they could ask of them is get off the land. We want it. You know, so you have everything from the red sticks you know, fighting against the United States with the vision of of Tecumseh of, let's abandon alcohol, let's abandon Christianity, let's abandon, you know, cotton cloth, uh, domesticated animals, all the way to uh, people like William Pesce who were saying, we're doing everything we could possibly do. And so what it shows that they do have vision and in many ways, the struggle to stop the Indian Removal Act mobilized a lot of people who would then become active in the anti-slavery movement. Um, the, people may remember William Lloyd Garrison, the Liberator, doesn't emerge until 1831, and what we think of as immediate uh, abolition. Well, the movement for, to stop the dispossession of American Indians had already been going on for several years. And a lot of the language was the same. This is unchristian. How could we, you're supposed to love it, people like you love yourself. How can this possibly be? And they they discovered, uh, too, that this fixation on what they call skin, you know, which we later end up calling race, but which they accurately just call skin, um, is um, pre presages uh, the attack on racism against Black people. So it's interesting to see this. Now, if, if you'll permit me to say so, today we're posting... Uh, on the, the site that I you pointed out. I'm new executive director, newamericanhistory.org. I, I, I believe people would find it very interesting. And it's sister project, which is bunkhistory.org, which is a real-time curation of every representation of American history every day. And believe me, there's lots of war <laughs> from every period on there. But we have a new site dedicated to this book just came out today. And on that, there are five powerful videos in which we imagine in their place and time and the appropriate gender and ethnicity of some of these people. And there's a video, a one-minute video, uh, highly produced, of William Apess on his way to a church to give this sermon. So we're trying to give ways, especially for young people, to be able to imagine this re- incredibly remote period. Nobody can tell me, what does things look like in the 1830s? People kind of know about powdered wigs and so forth, the founding, and they can pick their Civil Civil War uniforms, but is that hoop skirts? You not know what's going on. So we're, we're making history visually accurate to convey that. So yes, there were, and this is also when women first mobilized, was to- uh, try to stop Indian removal, and they they filled a giant room in Washington with petitions that they would send in. So it's interesting to see how much of the effort against slavery was prefigured in the effort to, to stop Indian removal.
1: Something interesting um, that is—don't you think it's interesting that uh, at at this point of time in in American history that it was, as you said, it was a crime in I, I think you said New Hampshire, Massachusetts. For a a white person to marry a a native person. Uh, I remember, I've always been, without outing anybody in my family, um, some of the older, very much older people of my family um, have often said that we have um, Cherokee uh, ancestry.
0: (laughs) It's always Cherokee. We do too. My wife's family.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 And I remember reading an article about how. That that is actually uh, something that got started after the Civil War for people to more identify with the land. Um, I, have you heard, have you heard of this? Chances are none of us like have Cherokee ancestry. Maybe some of us do, um, but is is this something you're familiar with?
0: Yeah. Well, ours is more plausible than than yours. If you're from okay. Indiana, I would okay. say because. We, we lived really in the midst of what had been the Cherokee land um, in East Tennessee and Western North Carolina. So th- that's plausible in that case. Yeah. Right now, uh, many people are claiming to be American Indian uh, and so you have this thing. Everybody wants to be part Indian, <laughs> but people don't want to have to be restricted to a reservation and have their their rights <laughs> taken away from them. So I think, you know, at the Museum of the American Indian uh, in Washington, have powerful exhibits about continuing fascination of white Americans with American Indian uh, identity and ancestry. And, you know, I, when I'm growing up in the 1950s, you know, Every boy, every white boy, wore a loincloth and you know, wanted to play cowboys and Indians, and and it was just a f- fundamental part of all that. So, but today it's a problem for Indian nations because so many people want to claim Indian ancestry, but if you're trying to protect the sovereignty of your of your nation, um, you kind of have to look at the records to see who actually belongs. So. It's a very unstable situation right now. There's an article just last week in the Times of the Post about uh, was there really that much of an increase in American Indian population in the last census, or is it just that people wanted to be honorary Indians? So, right. yeah. yeah. So that's well, the thing is that in all the culture of this time, uh, you know, Black Hawk's autobiography, 1833, is a bestseller in which he's basically, you know, telling white people, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, that this is wrong, and people buy it. And, and you know George Catlin's Indian Gallery tra- travels all al- all over the United States and, and in Europe, people flock and that, so the, and of course the last of the Mohicans and so people white people are very sympathetic to American Indians, but it does them no good whatsoever when it comes on the actions of the federal government. So yeah. and it's also regionalized uh, by this time, even though as you're pointing out that in New England it's illegal for intermarriage, it's New England criticizing the South for where. Most Indian removal takes place in the 1830s, in many ways that a lot of it had already taken place on the north. And that kind of feeds that regional tension that helps feed into the Civil War to kind of look ahead, maybe to another uh-huh. war you want to talk about. Well, um,
1: well yes, before we get to that, um, I do have a question that um, um, almost certainly does not have a simple answer. But um, what's your assessment of Andrew Jackson? um bad guy good guy what what's what's the assessment
0: yeah he was um he was really good at mobilizing um these ragtag armies to win these battles uh, in eighteen fourteen and eighteen fifteen uh and uh, he was really good at sort of um saying the things that could mobilize the largest number of white men uh but, you know, from he was in some ways out of touch with his time, even though we see his, him as a symbol of his time. He had a very old-fashioned uh, perspective uh, of, of what manliness was and what the United States would be. So I think, you know, it, historians today would think the most important thing he did was the Indian Removal Act, you know, uh, and he no longer seems the embodiment of democracy that he seemed to to the Democratic Party deep into the twentieth century. You know, uh, until not too long ago, he was seen as the very symbol of democracy. Well, yeah, if democracy is property only owning white men, you know, but if you, if you're anybody else, uh, Jackson seems retrograde. So he was really good at what he did. Sure. (laughs) This is my answer to your question. But what he did (laughs) uh, was um, contrary to the desires of a lot of Americans, but not enough to not elect him. (laughs) Well, I mean,
1: he's like one of those, you know, I'm constantly putting um, what I, I know as an adult against what I learned when I was in school. But I'm also, I'm always just kind of like thinking like, you know, what did I learn uh, growing up? And, and, you know, maybe what is the reality of, of what actually happened? I think the whole country is actually kind of taking that.
0: Uh, yeah, that same... I'd say Jackson's probably undergone the greatest revision and diminution yeah. of anybody in the last quarter century. Um, and from, you know, being the hero of the common man, you know, uh, to being the embodiment of these uh, great wrongs in American history. So yeah. on the other hand, The United States wouldn't be the United States if he'd not won these military victories. So, you know, in in general. I don't I'm not really much of a fan of passing judgment on people of the past. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, something I often say is that uh, I'm morally superior to every dead person who's ever lived. Right. (laughs) They they can't defend themselves. But 100 years from now, people gonna look back on us and they go, what in the world were they thinking and saying so? I think that history is fundamentally an exercise in humility. Uh, And I would say that, you know, my experience in, you know, writing about the Civil War, people like to pass judgment on generals. and and It's like, can you imagine trying to command a Civil War army with no forms of communication, all these things? So, you know, it may be, my whole form of history is empathy. Yeah. Let's just try to include everybody in the story and try to imagine it from their point of view. Uh, And ironically, if you do that, it's kind of self-correcting. Democracy sort of asserts itself and respect for people who were. uh, Who were mistreated or who were treated unjustly kind of rises if you just listen to what people actually said, so that, that's kind of what this book is. Let's 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 expand the chorus
1: <laughs> and hear yeah. what
0: most people had to say. And if you do, okay. it turns out that not everybody is in favor of Andrew Jackson, and not everybody. You know, yeah. you, you get the idea. Sure. Is that it, that's a way of democratizing history without preaching about it? Right. Uh, I'm not trying to cross my arms and act as if I, you know. Uh, some paragon of moral virtue it 's just like wow i 've read what people said, and they saw pretty clearly <laughs> that yeah. this was wrong at the time and resisted it and unfortunately, they couldn 't vote if they were women uh, or if they were black men um, and uh, but they could see what was going on so yeah. i I, I kind of disconnect the story a little bit from what we think of as politics to expand politics to be a broader conversation. Yeah. Oh, that's well, a long riff. I thought of Andrew Jackson. you excuse me for going on. No, that's great. That's perfect.
1: Um, let's let's talk about because I, I promised the audience at the beginning of the show we were going to talk about four wars, and gosh yeah. darn it, uh, we're going to do that. Um, let's let's talk about the uh, uh, Mexican War, and uh, I'm curious if you can just if you can talk again, just kind of very briefly how that started, and then um, how that connects to the story that you're you're telling here.
0: Yeah, the Mexican War is, uh, m- along with the War of 1812, a foundational war that has kind of a blank space in our memory, you know, uh, that people don't can't quite wrap their minds around what that was really all about. Um, and we spent quite a bit of time in Texas on this last trip at, at the Alamo and San Jacinto. What um, year, by the way, did the Mexican War start? uh eighteen forty six and seven and eight is when it, it's it's going on. And um uh, so what I found in Texas is that the war for Texas independence, you know, the Alamo, uh bleeds into um the Mexican War in very indistinct ways, even though for 10 years Texas claims to be an independent nation, right? Trying to to have it all, both ways. And then what you find is that um the story certainly of the Alamo, I went back and watched the old Davy Crockett film from 1955 because um, at the Alamo now, this huge collection given by Phil Collins, yes, the oh, Phil Collins of Genesis of, of rock music in the 80s, <laughs> okay. right? Um, and he'd been a boyhood fan of Davy Crockett and built this multimillion dollar collection of artifacts about the Alamo, which are now on display. But they're all about just the battle. You know, what wall did Santa Ana's troops crawl over or whatever? And, uh, th- and David Crockett, who unfortunately I, I say lived in Texas only long enough to get killed, <laughs> you know, uh, but is seen as a great Texas hero. And it's like, really, two months? Is that- that's enough to be a Texas hero? Um, and there's a great evasion there. And this goes back to what we were saying about the War of 1812 and about the Revolution and about the Confederacy, for that matter, what role does slavery play? Well, what we need to remember is that Mexico had outlawed slavery in 1829, and whereas the white settlers uh, not only were taking land, which they'd been invited by the Mexican government, and it goes back to our other story. Why? To help fight against the Comanches, right? So if you have white settlers there to occupy northern Mexico, the Comanches are going to have a buffer. Right, Um, but give enormous amounts of this wonderful land uh, to white settlers, and Stephen F. Austin, you know, not really a fan of slavery, but he says people aren't going to come if we don't allow them to bring enslaved people, and so uh, slavery—what the white settlers of Texas are defending in part is the right to have African American slavery. Uh, You just don't see that in the story right? Uh, that That's just because they're fighting against this big central government. So if you can imagine how this fits into current day politics, right? It's the state against the centralized government of Santa Ana and all that. So, um, but there is a new exhibit uh, at San Jacinto, as they say in Texas, uh, that shows the Five thousand black people in slavery in Mexico or in Texas in 1835 grows into something like 160,000 by 1860, and it becomes one of the fastest growing areas of slavery. So you know, from the Mexican point of view, they were a they were a, a non-slaveholding republic, defending itself against an avaricious uh, slaveholding United States in which most of the soldiers are. You know, volunteers are from uh, the southeast, and most of the settlers of Texas are. But we don't we don't really have a good story about Tex- about the Mexican War, except that Halls of Montezuma, the United States turned out to be better at fighting a war than we could have imagined, uh, really excellent generalship. And of course, you know, a lot of fa- people who become famous 15 years later in the Civil War, uh, sort of, or in their Spurs or Stripes uh, in the Mexican War. Um, and then the, we end up getting most of North America as a result, including California, which immediately has a gold rush. You know, So it's like uh, the pieces don't really fit together, except that maybe it's what people thought back at the time, that this was God's will, that we were yeah. supposed to have North America, because otherwise you would not have predicted anything like this outcome. And I quote Albert Gallatin, who's been a a supporter, an advisor to Thomas Jefferson, who says, this idea that God intends for us to, because of racial superiority, to defeat the Mexicans is sacrilege. We created the United States to say that everybody has a right to self-government. Why do we think that we have this special right? So I'd say that we have a very unstable understanding of the war with Mexico Uh, You know, Ulysses Grant later calls it a wicked war uh, that was provoked by the United States precisely to take Texas. And then once we got Texas, give us the rest of the continent. So, uh, you know, it's hard to tell. First, it was hard to tell a hard story about it. And now it's kind of hard to tell a positive story about it other than the outcome of it was good. Now. You could argue, and nothing is fair to say, and, and there's an excellent recent books about the Mexican War, that it's not like Mexico was really in control of this area, and it 's not like it was really flourishing under this area being what became the western United States. Uh, and it's not as if you know the, the Mexican government was stable and a beacon of democracy. So all those things are true, but it's also the case that at the time, many people Famous like Henry David Thoreau says that this is an an unchristian and unjust war that we should never have been in in the first place. That it's designed to expand slavery. That of course ends up being the primary result is it expands the United States enough for the Confederacy to emerge not too Mm -hmm. long afterward and lead to the Civil War. So you know, again, this is one of these cases, and it, it turns out too that the Mexican War is the first one that's heavily reported by telegraph and it's when courier and Ives first uh, come on board and making these imaginary lithographs of some battle that they, nobody ever saw that they just kind of all the soldiers look suspiciously alike, you know, (laughs) lined up against each other and so forth. Um, But Americans become weary of it. And, and also kind of disgusted by the stories they hear of atrocities by American soldiers against uh, Mexican civilians and the shelling of um, of Mexican cities in which civilians are killed is it becomes a topic of of, of a public displeasure and and yeah. so the United States goes into the war proclaiming it's on the side of liberty ends the war not so sure about that um, and that we didn't really wage it well but then. The gold rush, and we think yeah. that it was
1: would you say off. that the first, the first maybe large scale anti-war movement happens around this time?
0: Well, yes, large scale. I mean, there something I meant to mention before is that New England didn't support the war of eighteen twelve and threatened to secede, right? Uh, and so, which the Confederates used later to point out the hypocrisy of the North. You know, when you don't like something, you talk about leaving the Union. Now you, but now we don't. We're somehow traitors. Uh, so there was opposition to that there was opposition to the Seminole War there was opposition to Indian removal and there was opposition to the War of Mexico um and you know there's the case too where the whigs uh you know are speak against the war but then end up being the great beneficiaries by promoting its generals as their political as their presidential candidates so i think that's something else that happened we used to think that the whigs were the good guys and all of this because of things they said against the war at the beginning, but they made their peace with it pretty quickly when it was sure. to their advantage. So, you know, it's, it's a muddy situation that I think is, is hard to um, yeah. tell an inspiring story about other than we did a good job with all this land we won later.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, let's transition to the, the, the civil war. So, yep. so much has been written about the civil war. You yourself have written multiple books yeah. uh, about the civil war you know, I'm I'm curious, what new things do we have to learn about the Civil War and the lead up to the Civil War that you talk about?
0: Yeah, this is kind of an awkward question for me, A.J., because uh, I, I argued uh, before in several places that we've got to be careful about telegraphing the Civil War as if people knew it was going to happen. So in 2009, we had the first event in the nation on the uh, Cesar Centennial of the Civil War, at the University of Richmond, and I invited a lot of great historians to U. R. to have a session on 18, uh, to, uh, 19, 1859. and but they couldn't know anything that happened at the end of eighteen after the end of eighteen fifty nine, and they all agreed that nobody saw the Civil War coming, right? That the big event would have been silver and gold discovered in Colorado or the the uh, revival of 1857 john brown was a big deal but that's probably an nice. you know so and because that was my whole point is that the civil war was not so much coming as it suddenly crashed it was like a it was more it was more tectonic like an earthquake than it was like a storm even though that's the, the language that maybe the coming storm the impending crisis and all that well it had been impending for 25 years Uh, And but nobody could have imagined the Civil War that actually occurred Um, and nobody could have imagined the end of the largest system of slavery in the world in just five years. And nobody could have imagined the death of the equivalent of eight million. If it happened today, eight million people dying. Right. So that'd been my whole point. It's like pushing against the grain of its industrial nation versus an agrarian nation and all this sort of stuff. I'd sort of, you know, uh, spoken out against that, including some you know people I admire very much, like you know James McPherson. I just sort of said, well, you know, it's maybe not as evident that it's going to happen as it seemed in retrospect. Now, in this book, partly because I am listening to all these voices who are raising warnings about various kinds of things, uh, you can see the culture kind of rotting from inside. Uh, is what I point out. You know, you, you find that it becomes common, expected for white Southerners to disdain the white North and vice versa. There's really no basis for comedy, for uh, mutual understanding. And then you have, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin and, you know, the, the Dred Scott and all these. And each of these erodes the cultural resources of the United States to withstand a shock. And then that shock is the election of Abraham Lincoln, right, and so I wouldn't say I'm revising my earlier revisionism, but I am saying that political events are still what brings on the Civil War, but the cultural foundations of the nation had been weakened over the preceding twenty years, partly by the war in Mexico, partly because of Indian removal, but mainly because of the expansion of slavery into texas and it looks like and then Perspective expansion into California and Kansas and Nebraska and all those kinds of ways. Uh, and it becomes, and it, the comparison with today is not accidental. You know, once you've used up all your assumptions of goodwill of your opponent, you're weakened. Yeah. The nation is weakened to deal with any kind of crisis. And I think that's kind of what happened uh, in the Civil War. So what I, I say is that the abolitionist did not cause the Civil War, but they may very well have caused emancipation to emerge from the Civil War. They created a sort of a stockpile of positive representations of black capacity, of reminding us of the principles of the Declaration of Independence uh, and of the Bible, saying that these people deserve freedom. So that, again, I never gave you a, a quick answer of the sort you requested on anything, but. That's how I think that all this cultural change, it both erodes the nation, but then it supplies the nation with idealism when it really needs it. Uh, And the Civil War ends better than anybody could have imagined with the end of slavery and the reunification of the United States, none of which seemed evident as late as 1864. Uh, So I'm a big believer in contingent events and unexpected outcomes, and and I, I, I draw hope from that. Sometimes history is worse than we can imagine, but sometimes it's better than we can imagine. As somebody who grew up in the segregated South and then watched the civil rights movement come out of nowhere and led by people without political power, I believe that we can we have within ourselves capacity for a better United States than sometimes we can imagine right now.
1: Yeah. Well, what do you what do you think are some of uh, those types of lessons that can be drawn from this period. What What is important, do you think, today to pay attention to from between 1800 and 1860 that's relevant?
0: I'd say several things. One, the people who spoke most powerfully in favor of justice did not do so from any external uh, ideology or inspiration. They're just saying, let's be true to the Declaration of Independence. Let's expand it. All men and women are created equal. It doesn't matter what skin color you are, you're created equal. Uh, and it's also the case that while the, the, the churches of the period did not really stand up uh, in, to face the moral challenge, a lot of people of religious faith did, uh, especially a lot of Quakers and other people are saying, let's be true to the spirit of what we claim to be as the American religion of Christianity. Are we behaving in a Christian way to treat people this way? no, we are not. Uh, But it's also the case that other principles of free expression, of people saying, you're not going to tell me what I can say. I'm going to be Walt Whitman. I'm going to write this kind of poetry if I want to. And I'm Henry David Thoreau. I'm going to say these things. And I'm Frederick Douglass. And I'm going to give this speech. So I think that people speaking the truth, even if they don't have any power or authority, is important. So all these things are fundamental To the United States, we're a country basically based on innovation and change um, and um, improvisation. Um, And so I'd say my book is unusual in the sense that I give so much power to poets and painters and musicians because they are changing the culture uh, Mm. while politics comes to Politics of the 1850s in particular is, is broken. Again, it's kind of another foreshadowing of our own time. You know, people lose confidence in their political leaders to lead the nation. And uh, and it was well-placed loss of confidence, as it turned yeah. out. Uh, and uh, so, but even if politics seems broken, there are resources within, within ourselves that can lead us to a better country.
1: Well, uh, I'm going to ask a question that is, it's, an, it's impossible to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm curious uh, how you might answer it. Um, hypothetically. Uh, if the U.S. lost the Revolutionary War, what do you think the world would look like today?
0: You know, I think the United States would have been Canada. Um, and uh, it's hard to say too much wrong about Canada, it seems <laughs> to me. Now, the difference is Canada was not, did not behave any better than the United States when it came to indigenous peoples. So that gives you some indication that people of this ancestry are self-righteous and believe they rule the world. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you're English, Canadian or American. Right. What would have happened if. If in the British Empire, the native people had not been displaced, you couldn't have had the slave empire expand the way that it did. So. Depends on when you stop the story has the United States been a great force for good in the 20th century? It has, right? And uh, in, in World War II in, in particular. Uh, and, but I think that um, we would have had a lot more complicated history of the world, but I think the United States would have been Australia or Canada uh, with the same sins that th- those places have endured as well. The big, for me, um, unknown is what would have become of slavery. You know. People forget that the British Caribbean was a far larger slave empire than the United States was at the beginning of this period. Um, and But that the British, partly because it wasn't part of their own nation, but distant islands, did abolish slavery in the 1830s. The big question is would that, would, if the United States were still a part of Great Britain, would that have stopped abolition uh, anywhere? Or would it have meant that the British would have abolished slavery in North America? So Mm -hmm. you can hear what I'm, I I don't think that we have put slavery and native dispossession and war, frankly, at the center of our stories. What do we call this period? It's the era of expansion, right? (laughs) Well, yeah, (laughs) we did expand. um, And the story is of the frontier. Well, why was it the frontier and so forth? So I consider myself a patriotic person who thinks it's not unpatriotic to acknowledge these facts uh, and to that if we're going to teach our children an honest and powerful history, we need to do it uh, by acknowledging these truths. Um, and, but today, this idea that you can't teach anything that hurts white people's feelings or somehow suggests that we were not always God's chosen people is misguided because it doesn't align with the historical record. It doesn't mean you hate America. It doesn't mean you're not loyal to its principles. It doesn't mean you want to indoctrinate children. It just means you want to tell the truth.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, Ed, this has been a really a terrific interview. Um, my last question for you here is, uh, what are you hoping readers take away from your
0: book? That there are a lot more people in American history than we might have thought. <laughs> And that this period is a lot more interesting Great. than it seems. Uh, and that in many ways, we're still working through the challenges the people in these 60 years confronted.
1: Great. And if uh, folks want to stay in touch with what you're doing, what you're working on right now, how can people stay in touch with you?
0: Well, thank you for this. I, I hope people will look at newamericanhistory.org and bunkhistory.org. Um, and um, We're working hard every day to make history a living, vital presence in American life. We have no political agenda. We don't ask anybody for for money. We don't ask you to sign up for anything. Uh, We're just saying American history is so rich and exciting, and as your podcast is showing, right, that there are people who want to know more about our past. Uh, Those are the places where you can best see where I'm putting my energies um, is to. Uh, look at those things. I, I, if, if anybody, you know, finds this book intriguing, if you go on to New American History, click on Scholarship, you'll see this book. We link into the the original source of everybody, I quote, a hundred. there's a hundred books and pamphlets that you can go on the internet, archive directly, and see that. There's also this, the road trip that you described. There's also uh, the videos that I've talked about. All different ways to imagine this period that I think is foundational to, to who we are.
1: Yeah. Well, um, Edward Ayers, uh, American Visions, the United States, 1800 to 1860. Go buy a copy. Go check it out from your library. Uh, check out all of the cool work Ed is doing. Um, you know, what a, a great story you've got here. And uh, thank you so much for your time today, Ed. I-